crowd, why are Republicans, why are conservatives so exercised about celebrity culture and Taylor Swift uh, possibly stealing the election? And I saw an insight from a book that came out a few years ago called Irony and Outrage, the Polarized Landscape of Rage, Fear, and Laughter in the United States. And here's the point. Conservatives like borders, all right? So the more conservative... Right, the higher the likelihood that this person will prefer solid edges and lines and pictures in frames. So I've got a picture right here. It's not in a frame. So I'm a bad conservative in this regard. I failed to put my, my picture in a frame. So to carry this on to today's political reality, the same people who support the building of a physical boundary, all right, a literal wall along the United States southern border to keep out illegal immigrants, they also want a physical boundary, a frame, to visually separate their artwork from the drywall around it. And they also don't like celebrities participating in politics, all right? So the more conservative you are, the more you will want walls, right? The more you will want separation. So as a, as a Jew, on Saturday night, we say something called Havdalah, a ceremony called Havdalah, where we thank God for separating between uh, the holiness of the Sabbath and the secular days of the week between male and female, from adults and children, from between Jews and non-Jews. We celebrate the, the difference between people and animals. So separation is like the essence of the Jewish conception of, of holiness. We have all these different ways of, of making separations, and this appeals to a conservative perspective, right? That you want walls, you want distinctions between not just the southern border of the United States, but also between entertainment and, and politics and sports. So Fox News presents itself at very much as news, all right? So liberals are happy to get their news from entertainment shows like The Daily, news, uh, the Daily Show, but conservatives want to feel like they're getting news. They want news in one bundle and entertainment in another bundle, and they don't want these things mixing. So... February 2019, Fox News host Laura Ingram criticized the political expression of professional athletes such as the Cleveland Cavaliers, then LeBron James, now he's playing for the Lakers, says it's unwise to seek political advice from someone who gets paid $100 million a year to bounce a ball. Keep the political comments to yourselves. Shut up and dribble. Then another Republican said to Variety magazine in February 2018, Americans aren't interested in Hollywood liberals blabbing about politics to a room full of Hollywood liberals. So this belief that celebrities ought to stay in their lane, and that's one of the, the themes of my show, that we should all stay in our lane, right? This is a right-wing conservative reaction to want to impose boundaries on the world, right? The, the world outside of us is confusing. It is messy. It's, it's uh, beyond the ability of, of our brains to fully comprehend. And so to try to restore some feelings of comfort in life to restore an economy of thought, we like to put things in categories. So conservatives have a discomfort with celebrity political expression, right? It's not just that celebrities come from the left, but celeb people who are conservative tend to have an aversion to hybridity, right? They tend to have a low tolerance for ambiguity. 
So conservatives, as opposed to liberals, like poetry that rhymes, right? They like uh, works of fiction or art that have a clear, definitive message. And ambiguity is not usually an uncertainty. It's not something that uh, people on the right appreciate. So an influx of millions of illegal immigrants, that could bring good things. It could bring mixed things. But because people on the right tend to have less comfort with the unpredictable and with the ambiguous, it's very much experienced as a threat. So people on the right tend to have a much higher reaction to threat than people on the left. And so in different situations, all right, the right-wing response of being highly on guard for threat, highly suspicious of outgroups, is going to be a more adaptive approach. And then in other situations, higher openness to outsiders is going to be a more adaptive approach. So if you like very sharp distinctions between categories, between people, between concepts, between in-group and out-group, right, between actors and activists, between politicians and celebrities, right, then you're much more likely to be on the political right. All right, and here is the author from whose work I'm drawing, Denegal Goldthwaite Young. So our observations are not only theory-laden, they're also identity-laden. And give an example, because people might, those words, so we, we could be walking on the street and see two different things because yes. maybe we have two backgrounds. So sure. give an example. Well, yeah. the, the example that I give in the book, and because they're both me, is that I am, I'm from New Hampshire, and I'm from a rural area, and, but I also now live outside of Philadelphia, and I think of myself as a progressive who's environmentally minded, right? But in New Hampshire, when I am back home in New Hampshire, there are wind turbines that are on the top of the mountains, giant, giant windmills. The folks... Most of the folks who live there really do not like them. They think that they're eyesores. They, they ruin the natural beauty. Mm-hmm. They could harm tourism, etc. When I am there and I am so thinking of myself really as like a New Hampshireite, as a granite stater, which is what we call ourselves, uh, I really don't like them. Like, I feel like they look industrial and dirty and off-putting. But when I think about them when I'm here, I think of them as green energy and progress and clean air. Like, literally, how I perceive them changes depending upon what hat I'm wearing. And we all do this all the time. Um, there, there are some wonderful experiments by Jay Van Babel at NYU and his colleagues where they manipulate which identity people have in their minds, and it changes how, they, how food tastes to them. It changes how things sound, how things smell, because observations are identity Right. This rings true to me. When I entered college, I was very much a, a right-winger. Then at college, I found out that almost all the professors and all the cool people were on the left. And so as a college student, my identity started to switch and I became like uh, an atheistic uh, communist. All right. I just embraced Marxism and embraced the left wing critiques. And so like, how did my, you know, how did my politics so, so radically change? Well, in large part, because my identity changed from that of a construction worker to that of a university student. So I think she's under something here. Just as when women become mothers, right, wives and mothers, they become much more conservative. And when women are single, all right, and they, they look for the government to make the world safe and secure around them, they often become on the left. And it's so interesting, we, and that sort of goes to the next um, topic of conversation, because that can explain, in a lot of ways, how somebody who is perfectly intelligent, smart, doing a, a lot of great things in life, can take on and start believing some misinformation um, and, and act as though they know this thing. And you actually, mm-hmm. 
use yourself in the beginning of the book and admit that at one point in life, you yourself had been a conspiracy theorist. Yeah. I mean, how, is that, how is that so? So one of the things that I think is important is that people believe fictions because at that moment they need to. People embrace fictions because they, they feel that they need to. Mm -hmm. And um, those needs could be they feel the need to feel like they understand what's going on. They feel the need to feel like they have some agency or control. Or they feel the need to have community or be connected with others who share similar beliefs. Um, so when COVID happened, mm -hmm. I was getting a lot of messages on Facebook and emails from friends and family about you know the origins of COVID. What do I think of this story? What, what do you think about this account? Could it be that there was a leak? Could it be that it was a weapon? Could it be that Fauci was in on it, etc.? And a, a, mm. a documentary came out that you may have seen. Many of you probably saw it called like Plandemic or something. And it had um, a discredited scientist, a doctor, making all these accusations mm -hmm. about COVID. And what I found was that the people who were sharing these ideas with me we're actually saying, what do we think of this? Is this how we are going to understand COVID? Mm -hmm. They were checking in with their sort of social team to understand. Mm -hmm. um, but they were, they were in. Yeah, I mean, that's how we, we tend to understand the world. We reason socially. We, we check in with our tribe. We check in with our team. We check in with our in-group, particularly when dealing with something unprecedented like uh, the, the COVID outbreak in 2020. All right, we hadn't had an influenza epidemic like that in a long time how do we make sense of a, a confusing world right you check in with your in-group right how do you survive inflation you check in with your in-group how do you survive an earthquake how do you deal with a job loss right you, you check in with those people close to you and so we get our hero system usually from our, our tribe all right so this book so i'm citing irony and outrage the polarized landscape of rage fear and laughter in the united states well, it repeatedly cites another book, which I just read, called The Outrage Industry, Political Opinion Media, and the New Incivility. I think this is a, a, another terrific book. It's a 2014 book from Oxford University Press, and it talks about the outrage industry. It, isn't that just a great description for much of our punditry and much of our news media and much of our discourse on both the right and the left, though it is predominantly on the right? So outrage discourse, right? This is takes efforts to provoke emotional responses such as anger, fear, moral indignation, uses overgeneralizations, sensationalism, misleading or patently inaccurate information, ad hominem attacks, and belittling ridicule of opponents, right? That seems to pretty much sum up a great deal of right-wing live streaming. All right, so outrage sidesteps the messy nuances of complex political issues in favor of melodrama, misrepresentative exaggeration, mockery, and hyperbolic forecasts of impending doom. All right, that's, that's pretty much uh, the dominant part of right-wing discourse, right? The outrage genre is generally personality-centered with a given program or column or blog defined by one dominant charismatic voice, you know, Richard Spencer, uh, Nick Fuentes, uh, Tucker Carlson. You can think of uh, liberal columnists like Maureen Dowd or Bill O'Reilly, conservative blogger Michelle Malkin or liberal radio host Ed Schultz. So these programs will contain other voices, such as guests, callers, and commenters, but these voices take a strong backseat to the host, right? whose charm, emotional sensibilities, and worldview define the content. So the outrage genre is personality-centered. There's one dominant personality at the center of an outrage show. So unlike a conventional news program where news is central and the anchors are frequently replaced, 
There's no Rachel Maddow show without Rachel Maddow. And so the outrage genre is also reactive, right? Its point of entry into the political world is through response. So many of my shows are highly reactive, right? Things are going on in the world and, and I react. But then other times like this, I take the 10,000 foot uh, perspective. So outrage radio, outrage punditry, all right? You, you introduce breaking news and politics and you reinterpret, you reframe, you unpack, you decode the news from the headlines, the political speeches and the claims made by other outrage hosts. So this react, reactivity is closely linked to another attribute of the outrage medium and that's ideological selectivity. Right, so like news programs, right, not expected to address all major political developments, you choose to explore that which is most compelling. But while a conventional commentary might focus on the issues of the day seen as most pressing, right, or of most interest to the audience or in greatest need of in-depth examination, outrage commentary filters content selections through the lens of ideological coherence and superiority. So if I was to do a right-wing outrage show, I'd probably show you a bunch of clips from Twitter of certain groups in this country, outgroups, behaving badly. All right, so in the outrage industry, the focus is on stories that the host can position themselves or their political compatriots in the role of the hero and contain their enemies, opponents, or policies they dislike as dangerous, inept, or immoral. And Q, I now show you a bunch of uh, Twitter clips of Biden voters behaving badly. So the outrage industry, right? You, you essentially present a, a captivating distortion of a funhouse mirror rather than the discriminating insights of a microscope, right? The funhouse mirror, which distorts everything and is incredibly entertaining and compelling as opposed to the very minute discriminating insights of a microscope. So for outrage programming, you use you know those clips that will have the maximum emotional impact of say biden voters behaving badly and tiny niche issues are reshaped into major scandals so barbara learner specter right she's a jewish woman of no great importance she has some small position in sweden but because she said some particularly provocative things she's been blown up by enemies of the Jews into, you know, some major figure. But Barbara Lerner Specter has, has virtually no importance. But in the outrage genre, you take these you know, tiny niche issues and you reshape them into major scandals, into significant developments, and things that are less ideologically resonant are basically dismissed as trivial or completely ignored. Uh, outrage genre is engaging, right? People will find their favorite outrage hosts, you know, more entertaining than a conventional commentator because in outrage, there is performance, there are jokes, there is drama, there is conflict, there is fervor, and there is comfort. Most of all, there is comfort because you'll find your worldview honored. And conservatives have a much greater need for comfort than do people on the left because conservatives are always in danger of being tarred with the label racist. And it's very hard to defend yourself or to recover from being publicly labeled a racist. And so conservatives most find their worldview under attack. They find that they have to walk most gingerly through any political discussion. So conservatives are much more reluctant to engage with uh, people who differ from them in a political discussion in regular life because of the dangers of being called racist. So therefore, conservatives have a much greater need for their worldviews to be honored somewhere. And so that's why uh, right-wing talk radio 
and right-wing live streams are probably you know much more dominant than left-wing because people on the right and the f- the further right you go, the more need they have for comfort and for honoring of their worldviews. So an outrage show is like a political church, right? The faithful attend, they hear their values rearticulated in compelling ways, they leave feeling validated, and they leave feeling virtuous for having participated, right? You guys really understand what's going on. We're in a battle for the soul of America here. So outrage is marked by internal intertextuality, all right? <laughs> with personalities from outrage venues constantly referring to one another. So uh, ben Shapiro referred to Dennis Prager. Uh, Nick Fuentes will refer to Richard Spencer. So it's it's a, a tribe where you, you're continually referring to other members of the tribe. Inclined, they wanted to believe some of these things because a lot of the misinformation around COVID made it such that you could feel safer, yeah. right? If it's not real, then you're safe. Or if it's something that's deliberately spread, then you can identify who started it and you can fix it. So a lot of these, these misperceptions were about control. And I started digging and researching and started making connections to my own story, yeah. which is that in 2005 and 2006, my late husband was hospitalized and he had multiple surgeries for a brain tumor. And he passed away in July of 2006. But when he was first diagnosed and for, for those first couple of months in the fall of 2005, maybe it was about four or five weeks, I felt so out of control yeah. with this diagnosis that I was all over the internet finding accounts for where did this tumor come from? Why is it here? Is it possible that there is some environmental cause? Is it possible that um, after he had his first treatment, and then there, you know it's very common that after a first surgery it will grow back, then the conspiracy theories were, okay, well, were, was there malpractice? Is it possible that they didn't do the right thing? Did we get bad advice? And what I learned was that this, it is very, very common for folks who feel completely out of control and that they have no control in their situation to grasp onto conspiracy theories because conspiracy theories give you a target to be mm. angry at. And anger, as much as this seems counterintuitive, anger is actually an emotion that gives you some hope mm-hmm. and motivation. Right. So when almost all of our society's dominant institutions are controlled by the liberal left, it's understandable that people who are traditional and right wing would uh, have a greater need for a sense of agency, for a sense of hope, would be inspired to, to get angry, to try to you know, reclaim a feeling of power. You get emasculated when it seems like everyone in the high ground of the cultural, political, and institutional war is on the liberal left. And, direction. and I think people forget that. I mean, we know in the political psychology literature that the reason that a lot of political ads try to make people mad yeah. uh, is because anger is motivating. Anger motivates action. And so social psychologists have found that when people feel angry, they feel a lot more optimistic mm. than when they feel fearful or anxious. Right. So you'll notice that uh, the, the alt-right uh, discussion landscape is dominated by anger from people who are generally socially marginalized losers. And by feeling angry, they get to feel hope. They get to feel strong. They get to feel connection with other people. They get to feel significant. So this dominant ethos of anger, where does it come from? Well, let's say it's in their interests ostensibly, or at least immediately on the surface to get angry, because then you can get a sense that you're going to fight to the end, that you're in a war for survival, that you are significant, and that you have comrades. 
most important battle is yet to come, says the chat. I'm getting my girlfriend to iron my shirts. The woman's voice is a bit low, hard to hear. Okay. Thank you for that. So conservative voices in the outrage industry, all right, will inevitably condemn the conventional news media, right? So to be an outrage host or to be a pundit, right, you have to be able to convince your audience that you have a point of view on current affairs that is valuable. And to establish your own point of view as valuable, you are strongly incentivized to try to discredit other accounts to privilege your own account. So you have outrage hosts having a genuine frustration with conventional news reporting, and that merges with their own need for loyal fans. And so critique of the mainstream news media is basically a mainstay of the outrage genre. Another highly valued attribute of the outrage industry is that regular listeners tend to have a great deal of trust in the personality hosting the program. And uh, here's advice from a veteran talk radio guru. Be self-deprecating, be polarizing. So by being self-deprecating, you bond with your listeners. And by being polarizing, right, you are outraging and engaging. When you outrage, you engage. So being analytical, being thoughtful, being thorough, right, these all play poorly on cable and radio shows, right? Leading shows rarely mix in anything more than the most superficial analysis. They lean heavily on venting, on caustic criticism, and just laying into the other side. So you have a few exceptions. You have hosts like liberal Tom Hartman and conservative Hugh Hewitt, who make a conspicuous effort to demonstrate more intellect than the competition, but they fail to crack the top echelon of radio because they don't have a strategy that is a winning business strategy. All right, Hugh Hewitt gets a lot of compliments for being a thinking man's conservative, He's heard on only 120 stations, according to this 2019 book. By comparison, Sean Hannity, who I think we'd all regard as, you know, a lughead, as not very smart, he's heard on 500 stations. So the highest ranked hosts are the harshest in their rhetoric, the most extreme in the things they say, the most uncompromising in their contempt for those who don't agree with them. So you gain a competitive advantage against your against the people who are also in your industry, in your genre, by trying to stand out through the volume and the unique expression of your outrage, right? That's how you stand out. At cable, talk radio, live streaming, it's all about notice me, notice me, right? This is the attention economy. So there is an outsized, deliberate overstating to try to rise above the competitive cacophony, and the easiest way to rise above is to be outraged. Which makes intuitive sense, but mm-hmm. it also explains why, when you feel completely out of control, a conspiracy theory that has a target and someone to be mad at offers you some semblance of not just control, but also optimism. It's misplaced, it's misguided, but it offers you that. And I think about the COVID pandemic um, and sort of all of the misinformation that I was taking in as a journalist, and we were constantly fact-checking things and doing stories and trying to explain things. And then, of course, there was the social unrest, even more misinformation um, that we had to tackle. And, um, you know, I, I think about why that time, given what you just said, was the perfect breeding ground for mass mass conspiracy theories, mass belief of conspiracy theories. And can you talk about this time? Because it seemed like because for years, conspiracy theories have been around, 
but not on the, it didn't feel like it was on this massive scale. Did it feel like it shifted because of this time? Yeah, so, so we do know that conspiracy theories have been around forever. In fact, there are some accounts um, about the, the reason that conspiracy theories exist. One account by a psychologist, Michael Bang-Peterson, is that um, groups... Well, cons- conspiracy theories serve a need when you're failing at life. You need to have an explanation that the fault is something other than you and, and your tribe and your group. And so conspiracy theories provide a sense of comfort saying there's nothing wrong with you. The world is rigged against you. So why do people get bound up with a particular outrage host? Right? Not simply because of what they say and what they can do, but it's primarily based on the personal feelings that are evoked by who they are and how their presence makes one feel. So I want you to write in the chat right now how I consistently make you feel. So an outrage host offers social connections through pseudo-friendships, all right, with charismatic hosts. You get outrage programs dissolve the fear of social isolation by being connected to people who are like-minded in this imaginary virtual community. So in this particular social space, people get to fit in, they get to feel valued, and they get to feel understood. And then many hosts build a sense of community concretely through the construction of special events, online spaces, and meetup groups. You have virtual connections. Uh, Sean Hannity put on a series of concerts where the main draw was not the musical performance, but it was about sharing a group experience, you know, undergirded by common conservative values. Uh, you can join the Prager Force, right? Fight to take back this country with you know, like-minded conservative Dennis Prager fans. So political conversations in real life, such as with neighbors, friends, colleagues, are fraught with the risk of social rejection and being called a racist, right? The comfort zones provided by outrage shows present no such risk, right? These are imagined communities, and sometimes they can be turned into tangible social connections that are safe. You have communities built around media friends, but you're part of a group, right? So you not only have shared affinities, you also have shared aversions. And these loyalties are a reflection of your most deeply held values, your most strongly held hero system, right? They come from your perspectives on morality, intelligence, and character, rather than just mere idiosyncratic tastes and preferences, such as those who are believers, or you're part of some online video gaming community. So when you come here, you're sharing the information that you believe is true combined with your most deeply held values. So in the world of the outrage show, right, fans of the show are usually considered more intelligent than the idiotic others who just don't get it. Right, those whose views differ from the norm of the group get routinely vilified. Right, political opponents, journalists, people at the other end of the ideological spectrum. And that elevates insiders by contrast. So fans want to be informed. They want to prepare in the event they find themselves in a political conversation. And outrage hosts position themselves as trustworthy sources of information. Right, this is the place to come, guys, to get the real story, casting doubt on the reliability of the mainstream media which is described as a wash in liberal or corporate bias. So hosts regularly present opinion media as the place to come for the real news and dismiss the regular news media as manipulative opinion mongers with hidden agendas. And it's only in this outrage cocoon that you can be safe from bias. Create conspiracy theories about hostile coalitions like 
enemy outgroups that may exist in the shadows, and they do it for the reason for, to, to motivate the in-group towards action. It solves what they call the collective action problem. Like, but if there is an outgroup and they're doing something, you know, that's secret and shady, we have to. T- right, the collective action problem. Right, that that refers to it's hard to get people to take action that doesn't immediately deliver a tangible benefit to them. And the most effective way to engage in some effective collective action, all right, is to develop this strong sense of of group identity and to share a particular hero system and say, hey, we're going forth to do battle with the the enemies of all that is good. Take action to protect ourselves. Um, So they've been around for centuries. What we know is that when people are under conditions of stress and anxiety, which Mm. COVID was very stressful and people had a lot of anxiety, um, and it would make sense that people on the right will in some ways feel more stress and anxiety than people on the left because our dominant institutions are dominantly controlled by people on the liberal left. And when people are socially isolated, when people feel lonely, one of the predictors of belief in conspiracy theories is also a, a social distrust. If you do not trust other people or other individuals, you will tend to be more, more likely to embrace conspiracy theories. And I think about... So outrage, it offers hope, it offers strength, it offers connection, and it offers incentives to start taking real-world action. So the alt-right developed as an online phenomenon in particularly 2013, 2014, 2015, into 2016. It was overwhelmingly solely an online phenomenon. But in the process, people got revved up, they got angry, they got a sense of hope, they got a sense of strength, they got a sense of connection with other people. And they then took that, that strength into real-world action, which turned out to be an absolute disaster and destroyed the movement. So sometimes feeling strong and connected and dedicated to making a difference in the real world is going to be an absolute disaster. So if you're part of some outrage-based community, right, you will get reassurance and comfort, and you will be emboldened. And so you saw that particularly with the alt-right. Right? They were emboldened by the sense of connection that they got from being part of this outrage industry. And so rather than being filled with fear, right, people filled with fear are going to be, generally speaking, less likely to participate in public rallies and demonstrations. But by connecting with other people online, they were reassured, they were comforted, and they were emboldened. Right? And the outrage hosts, such as like a Richard Spencer or a Nick Fuentes or a Baked Alaska, all right, they would tell their audience that they were the good guys, right? They would celebrate the strong character of their audience, and they would allow their audience to see themselves in the role of the victor, right? You see this particularly with, with Richard Spencer. He would claim that his movement was decisive for the election of Donald Trump in 2016, and he would say, look, we are capable of easily dominating our political opponents, and this turned out to be a complete disaster. So outrage hosts... Right, function as supportive cheerleaders for and defenders of the values and the group that the fans hold dear. So people who have a favorite outrage host will sound giddy, elated, you know, happy when they talk about how their favorite host talks about issues that they care about in ways that are consistent with their own perspectives and beliefs. So hosts not only affirm the political views held by members of the audience, but they also tell them in subtle and obvious ways that they themselves are important, that you are valued, that you are the good guys. So fans tune in to hear the charismatic outrage host articulate the things that they feel most strongly about in ways that they find most persuasive. So 
Many fans begin to live vicariously through the host, and they imagine that they are as witty, as clever, and as confident as their favorite outrage personality. And by identifying with the host, fans imagine themselves deploying the same skills defending their views against critics with a magical combination of intellectual acumen, fervor, human humor, and dismissiveness. So outrage programs create a comfortable space that allows fans collusion more than conflict, right? They provide empowerment zones that bolster viewers' self-assuredness rather than challenging their beliefs. Fans tune in without fear of becoming uncomfortable, right? They do not need to fear confrontation nor do guests on these shows because even though these programs have a reputation for hostility, conflict on the show is really quite rare, right? The tough questions, the insults, and the accusations are usually made at a very safe distance from their targets. I think that that's an interesting fact, given how we were seeing other people as the potential spreaders of a deadly virus Mm. during COVID. Also, the simple fact that when people were alone and they were looking for community, they were doing it on social media because we weren't allowed to be together. And so a lot of communities formed around shared beliefs Mm. through Facebook pages and Facebook groups. So we saw saw that as sort of um, a a lexus of of where that came together. And then you think about... uh you know, media, right, being very partisan, um, how COVID became political. And it almost felt like the politicians were using this issue to sort of get people riled up. Good words. I yeah. feel like we did. So I, I want to take a step back because the role of social identity is so huge. Mm-hmm. And just to understand how social identity works in the U.S. context, to understand. Right. Social identity, it means that you share a political and social and religious hero system with your in-group, with your tribe. How journalists, even even yeah. good ones, Cherry, journalists can inadvertently prime social identity in ways that can be divisive and mm-hmm. cause people to be more likely to believe misinformation. So here, here's the issue. When you look at what has happened in the United States over the past 40 years, our political parties have come to... Uh, encapsulate not just people with these different policy positions, as I said, but different kinds of people. So in part in the 1960s and 70s, due to the the partisan racial realignment of the parties, you had, you know, really blacks from the South migrating north and west to cities and really forcing the hands of Democrats in those cities to prioritize civil rights The shift in the party structure was really because for decades there had been a compromise on race and civil rights uh, among what are now Democrats. So with that racial realignment, then there was a question on the part of the Republican Party, with these folks now leaving the party, how are we going to establish Mm -hmm. legislative success? And there was a deliberate effort in the 1970s to court evangelicals and to do so through an appeal that was actually a racial appeal. I talk in the book a bit about the, the sort of unity of race and religious motivations through the 1970s, the establishment of the Heritage Foundation, the mm-hmm. conservative think tank, really, and it started because there were white parents who felt frustrated that their children who were going to Christian schools were going to not be, not that they weren't going to be allowed to do so, but the the school's tax-exempt status was being revoked by the Nixon administration for violating these anti-segregation laws because they And the large part of the reason that these kids were in private Christian schools to begin with is that the public schools were desegregated and then these kids got beaten up, right? So some white parents got tired of their kids getting beaten up and so they transferred them to private schools were de facto segregated schools, right? So what happens is that this becomes a, and we talked about how anger 
is a mobilizing emotion. Mm -hmm. Well, there were people who recognized this as an opportunity. So when you had the launch of busing in Los Angeles in the early 1970s, you then had an explosion of private Jewish schools. So prior to busing, right, Jews were overwhelmingly in public schools. They were big proponents of public schools. But then with busing, you had the rise of a whole bunch of Jewish private schools because Jewish parents got tired of their kids getting beaten up by kids who were bussed in from out of the district. So that launched many right-wing political careers, particularly in places like California. ...to mobilize white evangelicals who were also motivated by the sort of underlying premise. So leading thinkers on the right in the United States in the 1970s looked for a way to unite the, the disparate elements of the possible Republican coalition. And they realized that they could not unite the right around we have to maintain tax breaks for racially segregated private schools, right? That's not a winning formula. Instead, they seized on abortion, opposition to abortion, right? That would unite anti-communists. It would unite uh, people who wanted lower tax rates and less government uh, regulation of industry. This would unite Catholics and, and Protestants. So even though opposition to abortion had never been a primary part of conservative identity or Christian identity until this time, they developed this life and death issue of abortion because it united the disparate elements of the Republican coalition. So abortion's not abortion. Abortion became prominent in American politics because smart people on the right saw it as a very effective way of uniting opposition to the liberal permissive society. Which was about racial segregation. And that really created this shift in this movement. So when you look at the shift in the parties in terms of their composition, what you have over the last 40 years is different kinds of people sorting themselves into the two parties. So now you have a Democratic Party, which is racial and ethnically diverse, has folks who live in suburban and urban communities, um, is more culturally liberal, um, and tends to be secular and agnostic. And you have a Republican Party that is overwhelmingly white, evangelical, rural, and culturally conservative. So because of the way social identity works, mm -hmm. when we are on a team and we feel like we're in a member of a team where everyone looks like me, acts like me, lives like me, and worships like me, it makes social identity super salient and it makes us very easy to ignite in terms of our anger and our perception of outgroup threat. And so when we look at the ACE... Okay, so outrage shows are safe spaces for the right. All right, yeah hear a lot of right-wing denunciation of safe spaces on college campuses for various uh, marginalized uh, outgroups, right? Uh, blacks, gays, etc. Well, outrage shows function as safe spaces for right-wingers, right? It's a place where you can go, express your opinion, and not get called a racist. So why is so much of outrage programming right-wing, right? And why is it so much more prevalent and more successful than liberal outrage, right? It's probably because of the different levels of cultural anxiety around political discussion, right? Conservatives take a much greater social risk when they engage in public political discussion than do moderates and progressive because pretty much everyone on the right has had the experience of being labeled a racist. And so this looms large in the minds of conservatives. And what makes accusations of racism so upsetting is that uh, the racist is socially stigmatized and they generally feel powerless to defend themselves once they are called a racist. All right, so outrage-based opinion is abundant because it is lucrative. It succeeds in a cluttered, competitive, and largely unregulated media space. 
and virulent, distorted, and demeaning political analysis appears with remarkable regularity because it appeals to millions of people, right? This genre is successful not only because it's dramatic, exciting, funny, not only because it features charismatic hosts who draw us in, but this dominant format resonates with us because our contemporary popular and political culture is interested in celebrities, in cynicism, in familiarity with reality TV. We fear discussing political issues openly in our communities. So that's the, the uh, supply side. And on the demand side, we find that conservative audiences have much greater hunger for outrage programming because they are more distrustful of the mainstream news media, more distrustful of our dominant institutions, and they generally perceive the world as hostile to their political views, and so they have an increased intense need for like-minded spaces. So outrage is a genre with recognizable attributes. It is formulaic, has an opening monologue, it has a segment structure, it has forms of critique, it has a limited presence of guests on TV and callers on radio, so the outrage genre is overwhelmingly predictable. It is playful. There's an intimacy between the viewer and the host. There are colorful antics. There's snark and uh, emotional intensity. Right? And the outrage personalities will tend to take themselves very seriously. Right? There's a great deal of laughter, but at the expense of their enemies. Right? At the end of, these, of the day, these outrage personalities present themselves as valiant patriots for truth, easily disgusted by those who might trample on the Constitution, on civil rights, or the people who are the real Americans, people who are the true heart of this nation. Symmetry of the way that misinformation and disinformation spreads on the right and the left, especially over the last 10 years. My, my suggestion is that this is very much driven by the homogenous social identity on the right. All of that is, and I want to yeah. ask you a quick follow-up yeah. question yeah. because one of the things you talk about in the book is this injection of intuition oh, yeah, yeah. over yeah. facts. And when you start having yep. an identity that is in alignment with a religion, yep. and religion allows you some space, right, yep. to, to, to use your intuition, to inject That's beliefs right. that may not be factually based. And that has sort of had, its, had it a run within the right in, in a lot of ways that has sort yep. of led to, you know, more mass acceptance of conspiracy theories. And I think that a lot of what we see in terms of these asymmetries um, is about the, what I call sort of the epistemology of evangelicalism. So what does that mean? Mm. It's about how do evangelical Christians come to truth? And by the way, this is not a judgment in terms of what is good and bad. It simply is a statement of what do we know based on the data happens when you come to truth certain ways. And, you know, I did a study with my colleagues looking at who is more likely to believe in mm. mis and disinformation, um, people who value intuition and their gut as pathways to truth, or people who value evidence and data as pathways to truth. Mm. All right, so people on the right, generally speaking, value their own gut, right? They, they value the lived experience of people like them more than they do on the pronouncements of uh, academics and government agencies. So one leading example of the outrage industry is Fox News. Roger Ailes created an entire network for, you know, outrage and he wasn't interested in a-list hosts right he valued authenticity over talent right people are able to speak from their own first-hand experience and base their view of the world on their own first-hand experience so successful outrage hosts tell stories that allow themselves to position themselves and people who think like them in the role of the hero and to taint enemies opponents and policies they dislike as dangerous or inept or immoral so outrage is designed to be reactive to respond to the events and topics of the day. 
But uh, for all of John Stewart's critiques of the failures of journalism, he never explored the systemic reasons for this failure. So his critiques were that journalists' failures were the responsibility of journalists or the fault of the cable networks. He didn't explore why cable news failed in the way it does. He didn't tackle media deregulation. He didn't tackle consolidation of media ownership. He didn't discuss the conundrum posed by journalism being charged with serving the public good and simultaneously being squeezed for corporate profit. He didn't discuss the democratic threat posed by five mega corporations owning the nation's entire media landscape or the fact that his own network, Comedy Central, was owned by one of them, Viacom. So people on the left tend to engage much more in satire and people on the right who are giving punditry tend to engage much more in outrage. So what the heck is the difference? So outrage is pointing out, you know, threats essentially from outgroups. Satire has four characteristics. There is aggression, there is play, there is laughter, and there is judgment. So aggression means that satire embodies the spirit of attack. Play refers to the fact that humor operates like a riddle, right? Humor is an inefficient method of communication. So humor depends upon allusions to silly or strange constructs. Uh, laughter captures the mirth anticipated by and derived from a satirical message and judgment. It's the notion that satire presents a, an evaluative argument aimed at a target, usually an institution, a policy, a practice, or society as a whole. So aggression and judgment distinguish satire from other kinds of humor. So satire judges and it asserts that some person, group, or institution or attitude is not what it should be. So however restrained, muted, or disguised a playful judgment may be, such an act undermines, threatens, or violates the target, making the act an attack. So the targets of satire and the judgments that satire levels abroad, they tend to be aimed at society, at systems, and at the audience itself. So most political humor is aimed to entertain the audience by poking fun at outsiders. By contrast, satire's target is usually at insiders, right? It attacks political institutions, society, public vices. So conventional Political humor is geared at making the audience laugh at others, right? Outrage industry is geared at making people laugh at others. Satire is designed to make the audience laugh at itself. So even Ricardo, who strongly believed that the 2020 election was stolen, he recognized the humor in the satirical attack on the New York Jets, who I think had gone 2-14 and 14, uh, around that season, but... There were all these audience presented that the New York Jets were really the most successful, the biggest winners of that season by presenting certain kinds of statistics showing how, how the Jets did you know, really well in certain categories. And even Ricardo, who believed in the stolen 2020 election, he, he saw the humor in that kind of satirical attack. So at the core of what makes things funny is the surprising violation of expectations. So if I ripped off my shirt right now and did a dance, that would be funny. Political satire is usually presented through irony, meaning stating one thing and meaning the opposite. So when I, when I say, oh, I love this particular outgroup, all right, and I'm speaking to a right-wing audience, they'll understand usually that uh, I'm saying I love them because it's a nicer way of saying that I can't stand them. So ironic juxtapositions contrast the real and the ideal. They contrast what is and what ought to be. When you describe things that are obviously bad as though they are good, right? Say multicultural big cities, we should be celebrating that. Talking to a right-wing audience right now, obviously you would expect that I'm being ironic, right? If you describe things that are obviously good as though they are bad, 
right? You're inviting your listener to question why things are bad or why things are not good. So irony has five elements. It evaluates, it's incongruous, it is valenced, it has a target, and it's relevant to the current context. So it evaluates in that it issues a moral judgment about something. Valence refers to emotion, right? Irony relies on incongruity between the literal and the true meaning of a something. Third, it requires an inversion of valence, meaning that positive assessments are really negative and negative ones are really positive. Fourth, irony is always aimed at some target. And finally, irony must be directly or indirectly relevant to the situation or the context in which it is introduced. So irony is a relevant context-specific form of judgment. It is aimed at a target, and its literal and intended meanings are at odds with one another. So Stephen Colbert, for many years, presented himself as a right-winger. So irony is a way of saying something really harsh by saying something kind. So a way that many dissident uh, live streamers have gotten around social media constraints and YouTube terms of service by being ironic instead of saying what they really mean. And the answer is the people who are more likely to believe mis- and disinformation are those who are guided by intuition and their gut. Intuitionists are more likely to be, to score high in religiosity and especially evangelicalism. These are also the same people who show overwhelming support not just in the U.S., but elsewhere, for authoritarian populists, mm-hmm. which I think is crucial because when in our research, we looked at whether or not there are correlations between coming to truth through intuition and republicanism, coming to truth through intuition and conservatism. And yeah, those relationships were there, but they're a little weaker. But when we look at support or, or coming to truth through intuition and support for Trump, that relationship is, is significant and substantive. Um, so for, for us, you know, in looking at this, there, there clearly is a relationship here. Mm-hmm. And political scientists Oliver and Wood have documented how and they contend yeah. that it is the sort of shift from, of evangelical Christians into the Republican Party that is responsible for this, this epistemological divide between the parties. They argue that that is the most pronounced divide of all, that coming, how we come to truth, how we come to know what mm-hmm. we know, if we differ on that, that that is the biggest divide of all. And when you look at how now religion maps onto political beliefs in the United States and political party, this, it's not a great combo. And I'll also just... So I, I previously referenced a terrific 2011 academic paper, Is Wide Shot Epistemological Populism, Argutainment, and Canadian Conservative Talk Radio. So much of what dominates right-wing discourse is epistemological populism. So we're not going to seek truth from the academy and from our dominant institutions because these institutions are controlled by the liberal left, right? So instead you have talk radio and right-wing live streams and pundits who rely upon what is called here epistemological populism. Epistemology means how do we know what we know? And so the populist version of how we know what we know is because we just know it in our gut, right? It relies on intuition rather than statistics issued by liberal left institutions. So epistemological populism borrows heavily from the rhetorical patterns of political discourse of populism to valorize the knowledge of the common people, which they possess by virtue of their proximity to everyday life, as distinguished from the rarefied knowledge of elites which reflects their alienation from everyday life and the common sense it produces. So Dennis Prager says that whenever an academic study clashes with common sense, all right, he sides with common sense. So how do you establish epistemological 
populism. You assert that individual opinions based upon firsthand experiences are more reliable as a form of knowledge than those generated by theories and academic studies. So, for example, when I talk about uh, COVID with, with Elliot, he will constantly cite the individual experience of himself or other people I know, and I'll start citing you know, academic papers. Uh, epistemological populism has the assertion that individual opinions based on firsthand experiences are more reliable than those generated by theories and academic studies. Certain types of firsthand experience are particularly reliable, such as the experience of uh, police officers rather than the experiences of left-wing social workers. You have the privilege of emotional intensity as an indicator of the reliable, reliability of opinions. Well, this host, this person, really feels strongly about this. Therefore, it's more likely to be accurate. And you dismiss other types of knowledge as elitist and therefore illegitimate. And you have the frequent appeal to common sense as the discussion-ending trump card. Just say, folks who study democratic health around the globe, they'll say, what you don't want in a healthy democracy is for your political parties to capture other dimensions that are sort of primally related to identity. Mm -hmm. You don't want political parties that also... Okay, so remember, there was the 30 Years War in Germany that was particularly bloody, right? Protestants and Catholics just waged a bloody 30-year war in Germany that cost millions of lives. And then that was in the 17th century. And as a result, you got the desire to neutralize the role of religion in politics. And so in the 17th, 18th century, you got the development of liberalism, the idea that we are not primarily members of a tribe or a nation, but that we are primarily individuals born with certain inalienable rights and that the purpose of government is to protect those rights. And the way that you then assemble a government and form uh, politics is to take more and more of life and try to render it outside of politics. You try to neutralize the political. And so first of all, you take religion outside of politics and you try to assemble a politics that is not uh, divided up by uh, religious allegiances. And so you institute rights that uh, people have the, have the right to worship freely, whatever religious denomination they choose. Then you see in the 20th century, the major political parties in the United States frequently taking controversial topics such as immigration and trying to neutralize it by trying to take it outside the realm of politics with regard to COVID policies, we try to take that out of the realm of politics and say, oh, we should leave that to the experts. Let's just follow the science, right? So you try to neutralize more and more of the political and instead put more and more of the political in the hands of the experts, right? People who are supposedly disinterested have specialized knowledge and are outside the control and the vote of ordinary people. So this is what she is saying is awesome capture religious differences, mm -hmm. racial differences, or ethnic differences. That's not good. What you want are political parties that capture policy. Right. She's saying that's not good because she has an essentially liberal view that wants to neutralize and remove from the political as many hot-button topics as possible and instead leave them in the hands of experts such as herself. See differences and ideological differences. Um, otherwise, you're going to run into what we have now, yeah. which is these identity-driven in-group, out-group um, skirmishes. It was interesting when I was in graduate school. Right. Identity-driven skirmishes are the norm, right? That's, that's how we operate. We tend to be intensely tribal. And so the, the aim of 
conventional liberal left politics is to change the way that we naturally operate in, in a tribal fashion and take more and more of these controversial hot button topics and put them in the hands of the experts. So why do people use humor and irony? All right, to look good, to look superior, to signal their cognitive sophistication, to make each other feel good, to make society work more easily, and to tackle difficult subjects without making other people angry. So I have a code of conduct. I encourage the use of irony rather than saying that you hate a particular group. So humor is an advanced and inefficient form of communication. All right, because when you speak using humor, you're not saying directly what you mean. So the dominant form of discourse on this show, when this show is working, right, is humor. where We're not directly saying what we mean. So I did a video a few months ago praising Joe Biden's foreign policy, right? My real feeling is that Joe Biden's foreign policy is an absolute disaster, but I, I tackled it with, with irony. So humor is an advanced and inefficient form of communication that fulfills our desires for status and our needs and gratifications. So if you're able to successfully use humor, right, that can signal that you're a leader, you have authority, and that you have intelligence. Right? Not everyone who's funny has intelligence, but everyone, no, everyone who's funny has intelligence, but not everyone who has intelligence is funny. So humor promotes social cohesion. So when the chat is working, when our relationship is working, when these shows are working, we have increased social cohesion among our little group, largely based on humor. And that allows us to thrive and to work productively together. It creates temporary feelings of happiness called mirth. And then we often project those good feelings right onto the host or the speaker, the person who creates the humor. This is the halo effect, right? Through which audience members feel good about the person who makes them feel good, right? It's the opposite of the shoot the messenger effect. So we tend to like people who make us feel good, and we tend to dislike people who make us feel bad. And we will tune into shows that make us feel good, and we'll avoid shows that make us feel bad. So arguments that are made through jokes elicit less resistance and less social media censorship than arguments made through regular serious discourse, right? Because People perceive humor, process humor differently from serious literal discourse, and so they choose to apply different rules when processing it. So instead of treating humor seriously, people see humor as just a joke. And so there's less scrutiny of the message and less scrutiny of the speaker, right? Because that's not appropriate to the genre of humor. So you can call this the discounting cue hypothesis. People choose whether or not to seriously scrutinize messages and messengers Right, And in the case of jokes, they usually decide not to. And in large part, that's because the cognitive processing required to make sense of even the most basic joke is quite burdensome. Right? Humor is an inefficient form of communication. Generally speaking, right, it's not a good form of communication to use with strangers and to use with superiors. Right? Don't use a lot of humor with your boss when he's on deadline and he needs to know whether you've accomplished certain tasks. Right? The meaning of jokes is usually implicit. Right? This forces the listeners to add appropriate amounts of information from their short-term and long-term memory to make sense of it. So if you're spending so much cognitive energy just getting and appreciating a joke, right, how on earth are you going to have the mental energy left over to scrutinize or challenge whatever argument the joke is suggesting? Right? This is Avian Leidig. She wrote a book called The Women of the Far Right, Social Media Influences and Online Radicalization. 
Um, and I actually link how they use these influencer practices as an effective radicalization strategy. So a lot of the far-right women that I detail in the book, they are particularly uh, adept at showcasing certain qualities of seeming to be relatable, accessible, and authentic to their followers and, and to mainstream audiences. And I show how this is a strategy that presents an opportunity for far-right actors to deliver propaganda on social media for a legitimizing effect of their political ideology. And I think this is something that is quite different from their male counterparts, for example, because their male counterparts tend to be a lot more um, escalatory in their rhetoric, a lot more violent in their rhetoric, and hence that's why we often see them get banned from platforms quite often. But for these women within the far right, they're very good at traversing that boundary between what is considered to be acceptable speech on these platforms, and that's often because they will cloak it in this acceptable discourse for their followers. So what motivates these women? Did, did, did you, have you looked at all into what, why, why, why paradoxically, and, or is it paradoxically um, that, that they behave, that they do this? Uh, I think it can break down into so many different reasons. And of course, it, it depends on the individual. Um, so when I was doing this research, I looked into the stories that these women would share about their radicalization journeys. And I do believe that for many of them, if not most of them, it was very genuine convictions that they had in terms of the ideological beliefs of, of the far right. Right. They, they have genuine convictions and they also have very human desires for, for status and money and for doing something fun and exciting. So we're all motivated by you know, all sorts of complex forces. So when we engage in humor, we're engaging in frame shifting, right? We activate a new frame from long-term or short-term memory to reinterpret information already active in our working memory. So there are all sorts of complex brain functions that occur in the context of humor. So you suppress information that was just activated in working memory and you replace it with a different schema or a frame of reference. You have to retrieve from long-term memory. This is hard work. So jokes essentially presuppose the speaker's ability to interpret language against background knowledge, right? So smarter people are going to have a much greater possibility for appreciating humor. And uh, appreciating even the most basic joke, it takes up quite a lot of uh, cognitive brain processing power. So humor requires so much work to comprehend and appreciate people become less able to actively argue against whatever is being proposed in the joke itself. So your cognitive resources have been allocated essentially to getting and appreciating the joke. You have fewer resources left over to scrutinize or to critique the argument made in that joke. So people are essentially cognitive misers, right? They don't like to expend more cognitive energy than is absolutely necessary. The capacity for information processing in working memory is quite limited. So this is, well, in, in computer terms, that's, that's RAM memory, right? So to live stream, I have to have considerable RAM memory in my computer. You're going to... You have to produce a, a, a working live stream. You'll usually need to spend over, you know, a thousand dollars on your computer. Essentially, get at, at a minimum a, a low-grade gaming computer because you need that much RAM. So, the capacity for information processing in our working memory is quite limited. So, we anticipate the reward of mirth from getting a joke. So, we may think it is worth expending cognitive energy to get the payoff of the punchline. So I constantly exhaust people because I'm constantly trying to make people around me laugh and this tires them out and they get sick of it, right? Because 
eventually they just want to, you know, get through the day and they don't want to be expending cognitive resources to try to understand the jokes that I'm making. So people are usually not motivated to think hard about multiple things at the same time, right? We, we don't tend to multitask well. So we have a limited capacity to process information. And if we're using our brains to process humor, right, we don't have much cognitive processing ability left over. So there are essentially two tasks that are incompatible with one another, getting and appreciating a joke, right, processing the funny stuff, and two, scrutinizing and critiquing the argument presented through that joke, right, processing the serious stuff. So the more invested the audience members are in the funny component of what you're saying, the less likely they are to judge the underlying strength of the argument. So the more engaged you are with the humor, the less likely you are to critique it. The more complex the humor, right, if the joke contains several hidden violations, if it's claims for more reasoning efforts, it will be funnier than if fewer are noticed and less intellectual efforts are devoted to the incongruity resolution. Right, professional comics cannot afford to tell jokes of such complexity that they leave the audience baffled. So humorous text will be perceived as funny if the incongruity at resolution is non-threatening, not too complex, nor too simple, Based on available scripts and knowledge, it is unexpected, surprising, and occurs in a playful mode. So the situation must be framed as humorous. People with different levels of need for cognition tend to differ in many different ways. So people low in a need for cognitive play are more likely to be dogmatic, right? more likely to believe in strong borders and boundaries, and to be more aware of social comparison cues. They're likely to place a high value on attractiveness or popularity. They're more likely to engage in selective attention, perception, and avoidance more likely to be high in the need for closure, more likely to have a strong aversion to ambiguity and uncertainty, and they are more likely to prefer order and predictability. So people who have a high need for cognitive play tend to be more curious, tend to be more willing to dedicate long periods of time to a dedicated task, more open to new ideas, more likely to see social and political issues as affecting them personally. So the first group's on the right, second group's on the left. So people who enjoy cognitive play are more likely to appreciate humor than those who don't. Right? Joke comprehension is essentially a playful form of riddle solving. Right? So the people who enjoy thinking right, are more appreciative of jokes. So you've got the need for cognitive play and the need for humor appreciation works together. Right? That's when you have humor. It's predominantly rooted in incongruity resolution, which is cognitively taxing. But when a joke is primarily about disparagement, making fun of someone or something, Right, the need for cognition disappears. So when incongruities are high, as they are in ironic texts, the need for cognitive play is an important predictor of enjoyment. So generally speaking, people on the right enjoy lower brow, lower IQ humor, according to this book, than people on the left who more enjoy satire and irony, while people on the right more enjoy outrage. So we encounter the world through various motivational states. Right? We we have personalities that differ depending upon context, depending upon what's going on in our environment. So sometimes we're in a serious goal-driven state. It's called a telic state, T-E-L-I-C. And people in this state are not going to want to engage in a lot of cognitive play. Other times we're in a more playful, spontaneous, paratelic state. Right? It's in the paratelic state that people are able to experience and appreciate humor. To enter into that state of play, right, the audience must perceive the environment and the joke itself as essentially non-threatening. So the author went to France during her junior year in college of study abroad. She noticed that when French people made joke, right, 
there was one type of joke she had to get on board with very quickly, and that's stupid Belgian jokes. And I think almost every society has jokes about a stupid group of outsiders. So in France, Belgians are the source of endless comedy for their supposed stupidity, just like in the United States for decades we had Pollock jokes. So satire is most likely to be appreciated by people who, due to personality, psychology, and their environment, can get satire and are willing to get it. These are the people who possess the requisite knowledge to reconcile incongruity. They have high openness. They enjoy playful thinking. That increases their motivation to get the joke. They are willing and able to entertain the topic in the state of play. So if you have a high need for cognitive play, right, you're likely to have a high tolerance of ambiguity. Tolerance for ambiguity is not the key trait that contributes to artistic and aesthetic preferences. Those high intolerance for ambiguity are right, much more likely to be on the left. Right? Those who have a high need for closure and a great fear of the unknown are much more likely to be on the right. So if you have a great deal of comfort with novelty and uncertainty, you're most likely to be on the political left. So people who are high in the tolerance for ambiguity tend to adapt easily to new situations, are open to new experiences, tend to reject structure, order, and predictability, right? These are people on the left. Those who are low in tolerance for ambiguity have a high need for closure, less comfortable with new experiences. They are lower in the personality trait of uh, openness to new experience, and they tend to prefer routine, prefer order, law and order, structure, and predictability. Right, back to the women of the far right, social media influences and online radicalization. But I also started to see them gain a lot more celebrity and attention, particularly within a movement which continuously is dominated by men, but often needs women to sort of showcase um, that this is a, a more legitimate space, or at least provide that perception of a more legitimate space. Um, and so, at least with the influencers I studied, I think they are opportunists and then they very much do see that there is a platform for them in this space. Um, and, and they often will justify their own positioning through these terms of agency and empowerment because, you know, they will claim, for example, that motherhood within the far right is empowering, that it provides women a sense of purpose and fulfillment. Um, but for these influencers, of course, there is this aspect of celebrity that is attached to that, that I, that I think that they very much desire because some of these women I profile, they, they actually left the far right and then came back. And then even some left again and came back. So I think there's a certain draw uh, of being what is. Right. If I, I told you that a you know, far right influence, a left and came back, left and came back, you, you would have more ex expectation that this was a woman rather than a, a man. So uh, this book on irony and outrage, there's various studies that show that the neurological structures of conservative brains are different from that of uh, liberal brains, that conservatives tend to have larger amygdalas. That's the region of the brain that responds to threat. So the size and the activity in your amygdala predicts your likeliness to react in a more emotionally charged way when responding to a threat. So conservatives tend to report high mortality salience. That is, they are significantly more cognizant of their own deaths, and they report greater fear of threat than do liberals. Liberals have bigger anterior cingulates. So this is courtier morality, right? This is the region of the brain involved in conflict monitoring, right? This is the process by which you determine whether your automatic responses matches the response that would be most appropriate for the situation at hand. So people on the right are more likely to trust uh, trust the gut, right? To retrust your you know your basic instincts against threat, your your basic loyalties to to faith, to tradition, to family, to blood, to soil. And liberals want a more reflexive uh, 
rational, uh, buffered identity where you, you distrust your immediate reactions and you constantly monitor it with your automatic response would be most appropriate for the situation at hand. So liberals with a larger anterior cingulate section of the brain are more likely to change how they react to certain events. They will tend to devote cognitive resources to choosing the most suitable responses to various situations. So the conservative response is more medieval and more gut-driven, and the, the modern approach is much more liberal. The traditional approach is more like the Lord of the Manor approach, where this is like your home is your castle, and you have the right to react from your gut. The liberal approach is much more like courtier morality, where you're constantly gauging what you say, what you do with the effects on a wide range of people around you. So conservatives will strongly monitor their environments for threat. Liberals will evaluate information, try to verify that the data that they feel is coming in matches their own impulsive and intuitive attitudes and judgment. So our political preferences, like our personalities, are largely based, or at least 50% based probably, in genetics. So the more conservative the more right-wing, the higher the likelihood that they will prefer solid edges and lines and borders and pictures in frames, right? This picture, not in a frame, not very conservative of me. So conservatives will agree with the following statement much more than liberals. Good, solid frames are very important for a picture or a painting. So the same people who support building a physical boundary along the U.S. southern border will also support putting a border on a picture. The people who oppose mixed marriage, euthanasia, abortion, smoking pot will prefer readily reconciled jokes over more incongruous, complex ones. If you vote Republican, you likely not only want frames for your artwork, you also want your jokes to have clear punchlines. Whereas irony requires the listener to invert the literal valence of the speaker to infer what the speaker actually means in terms of hyperbole and exaggeration and that requires much more cognitive work than appreciating outrage humor. So humor is a deliberately inefficient form of communication, right? Rather than explicitly communicate information with the goal of being clear and understood, humor transforms the act of communication into a game. It's a riddle, right? Or humor is essentially about solving riddles. Very much a sort of de facto leadership within this space. That's very interesting. I'm abusing my position here until we get uh, any questions. I'm continuing to ask. Um, so before I, I have, I have a, a, a sort of theoretical question for you, but actually before that, now that our conversation is getting very interesting, I just, did you find any variations? So you said some of them left, some of them stayed. I just want to know more about who they are. Um, was there some variation that the ones that... Who, was it, you said they're opportunist. Do they have some kind of more standard profile in terms of their age or sociodemographic or um, the ones that left and didn't come back? Did they have something, a specific reason for that? Yeah, that's a great question. And as somebody trained as a sociologist, I immediately thought about these various uh, <laughs> sociodemographic characteristics. Um, so when these women detail their, their lives. Right. So this is Avian Leidig, a sociologist, a left winger. And she's written a book here called The Women of the Far Right, Social Media Influences and Online Radicalization. At the same time, I'm finishing off with you highlights from a book about uh, irony and outrage, the polarized landscape of rage, fear, and laughter. So those are the two books under discussion, links in the video description. Stories and they go into their backgrounds. They will often talk about um, the fact that many of them grew up in middle-class families 
in middle-class neighborhoods. Um, they Almost all of them had attended university um, and some even went on to pursue postgraduate education. Um, they also will describe entering into corporate jobs after graduating from university um, and socializing with friends and colleagues from their jobs, living in urban areas. Um, but then there's a moment in time in which these influencers describe feeling deeply unhappy and depressed with their life situations. And right. So if you're feeling deeply unhappy and depressed with your life situation, you're going to have a greater need to find someone outside of yourself or a community outside of yourself that makes you feel happy and completed and lays a tapestry of, of meaning over the universe, right? When you have a strong sense of meaning, it's much more difficult to feel unhappy. So this book on irony and outrage, it favorably cites Kevin McDonald, right? Back in the early 1990s, he administered questionnaires to undergraduates, right? Almost all academic surveys are of undergraduates because they are the most willing to do things for a small amount of money. And Kevin McDonald wanted to measure various personality traits, such as extrovertedness and openness with intelligence. And uh, his survey found that smarter people are funnier than not smart people. And uh, people who are extroverted are going to be more adept at the production of jokes. And people who are higher in the personality trait of openness are going to produce more humor. People who devote their lives to stand-up comedy overwhelmingly tend to be on the left, right? A career in stand-up comedy is a, com is a poverty-paved road, right? It's filled with tricky potholes, serve as obstacles from continuing in a profession with wildly uneven work schedules and paychecks. If you're going to try to support a family, it's very difficult to develop a career in stand-up comedy. There was a book called A Conservative Walks Into a Bar. And the author explored the political and psychological characteristics of political satirists. And she found that the liberal nature of satire is in large part a function of the personality of the satirist as an unconventional, artsy, free-thinking, and unpredictable person. And these are traits much more prevalent among liberals than conservatives. So being a comic usually means comfort with ambiguity and chaos, right? To get good at comedy... You have to be part of a comedy community. That community is centered on hanging out and drinking. It's not centered on having and raising children. So having children is a huge barrier to entry to the comedy community. So things that conservatives like to do, such as get married early, have kids, show up early, go to church on Sundays, especially none of that in the world of comedy. It's a tough job where you devote every working hour to your jokes and you usually stay up until 2 in the morning. So comics, professionals, amateurs, and writers are significantly much more likely to be open to new experiences, to be tolerant of ambiguity than non-comics. And the whole process of creating humor involves complex cognitive labor, and this usually requires tolerance for ambiguity, openness to experience, and a need, desire, and pleasure from cognitive play. So appreciation of complex humor, such as satire and irony, is much greater among political liberals than those on the right. And successful humor production, you'd expect to be much greater among political liberals than political conservatives. And it's this sort of twist uh, in their lives that they attribute to an anti-feminist message. So they believe that feminism controls mainstream society and forces women into, quote, unnatural roles in the workplace. Um, so for these far-right women, they then argue that traditionalism is the antidote to feminism.
so that if women are in charge of the domestic sphere and men are the primary breadwinners for their families, this will create harmony uh, between the genders. Now, when it does come to things like radicalization stories, we should also take this with a grain of salt because people's memories can be complex, sometimes contradictory. Um, as Kathleen Blee, uh, who's written about this, has noted, we tend to see our past selves through our present selves, meaning that we tend to sort of understand our past selves through our current worldview. So that's why I say we should take this with a grain of salt. But indeed, what was quite so right wing outrage hosts tend to speak from a position of great moral certainty, All right? Which is a very different state than the self deprecation which uh, satirical hosts use. So outrage is a genre that bills itself as important, it's explicitly political, and they, the hosts see themselves as vehicles for the dissemination of truth. Satire bills itself as playful, designed to entertain, and as a vehicle for laughter. So you've got two distinct frames surrounding two distinct genres that appeal to two unique psychological profiles. Overwhelmingly, outrage appeals to the right, satire appeals to the left. Right, humor, the form of political discourse, has another disadvantage for audiences who prefer clarity, closure, certainty, and efficiency. Right, humor is inherently inefficient because humor is created through incongruous juxtapositions. Right, the audience must go through a complex series of cognitive activities to access the first frame of reference and then activate a second, seemingly disconnected frame of reference and then make that cognitive leap. So these aesthetics of hybridity are more compatible with a liberal left ideology. All right, back to Avian Leidig. What's striking to me in terms of the profile of these women is that they were well-educated, they were very articulate, um, and I think this is at least a spectrum of the far right that tends to not be noticed as frequently in terms of from the boots to blazers kind of uh, image uh, in terms of people with university degrees um, who read philosophy, who understand things like media strategy um, and how they are able to really articulate quite extreme right ideas um, in ways that are palatable to, to mainstream audiences. But indeed, when I talk to, to people and I say, I study middle-class university educated women, there is this uh, sort of, it, it definitely affects people's perceptions of then of what the far right looks like. Oh, indeed. Fascinating. It, it does take me to some of my own work on generally the voters. And it, again, you see a lot of variations. So you, you do see some of the less educated, you know, angry white men, but you also see um, in the broader voting patterns as well, this this uh, phenomenon. So it's very interesting. Mm -hmm. We're starting to have some questions, but I want to abuse my position and ask one more um, theoretical one. So I noticed uh, I've started reading the book. I haven't read it all, but I noticed you you mention uh, theory of femonationalism. And while I actually have lots of students who are fascinated by the theory of femonationalism, and sort of we've discussed quite a lot this idea that especially in Europe, what you're seeing in, is this sort of spin of the far right along feminist lines. So basically, to, you know, the Islamophobic narrative, right? So to exclude on this, on this basis of, of civic identity and say that certain particular groups are against feminists and against women, women's rights, etc. So I wanted to ask both in terms of theory, but also in terms of the empirical. Okay, we are an hour and 23 minutes into the show. Time for me to tackle the subject of today's show. And that's a hilarious column in the Financial Times called The Surprising Success of Multi-Ethnic Cities. And it's by Simon Cooper, who is a terrific soccer journalist. And here he writes, February 1, 
London, New York, and Paris deserve more credit for how well they are holding together. Every day in these multi-ethnic cities, people of Muslim, Christian, and Jewish origin share streets, buses, and classrooms. Ever since the Israel-Palestine war began, we've been watching unprecedentedly graphic videos. Really, are they that unprecedented? On social media of Muslims killing Jews and Jews killing Muslims. The wonder is not that their attentions in Western cities, but how calm they are. It is a sign of progress that we get upset about a few bigots shouting racist abuse on a London bus or scrolling it on walls. Mostly, peaceable living together continues. So I'm deeply concerned by this essay because it seems to me its implicit message is that uh, multi-ethnic communities are time bombs, that multi-ethnic communities are highly combustible, that the more diversity you have, the less social cohesion and social trust you have, and the more intense the conflict of interest between groups who are living together, the more likely you are to have violence and tragedy. So, yes, this essay is ostensibly about the beauties of big city multiculturalism, but I'm concerned that the implicit message here is providing support for nationalists and racists and those who want more homogeneous communities. So, next sentence. This is a daily miracle. Look, you can't rely on a miracle. Right? The first prime minister of the modern state of Israel, David Ben-Gurion, I think, said you can't, you can't rely on miracles. This is crazy. Right? He's saying that in, in multi-ethnic cities that we're not tearing each other apart. That's a miracle. Well, <laughs> what kind of person? What kind of person wants to rely on a miracle? That's absolutely insane. He's saying that... that uh, Multi-ethnic communities essentially depend upon miracles to stay peaceful. Don't you see how this is going to appeal to the racists and the the traditionalists and the the nationalists among us? My God, how did this get into the Financial Times? The Gazan War reminds us of the fragility of any multi-ethnic space. Whoa, the fragility of multi-ethnic space. Come on, Simon Cooper. You're supposed to tell us how you know, multi-ethnic spaces are stimulating, that they are elevating, that they are modern, that they are the, the liberal left thing to do, that they are awesome. Instead, you're telling us that they are fragile? Like, in what kind of world is a fragile space considered a, a good space? I don't know about you. I don't want to live in a fragile space. I want to live in a robust space. I want to live in a space of high social trust, high social cohesion, low crime, sense of connection and safety. And so from a, a traditional perspective, it would seem that the more people have in common with each other, the more likely you are to have social cohesion, social trust, low crime, a sense of connectedness that inspires happiness, cooperation, and essentially the good things in life, getting married, having kids, right? Who, who wants to try to raise kids in a fragile community as opposed to a robust community. My God, the Financial Times here, ostensibly supporting the multi-ethnic big city, but telling us it's fragile and that it essentially depends upon a miracle. The Gazan War reminds us of the fragility of any multi-ethnic space. You should not read this essay because it's going to promote atavistic ties to blood and soil. This is going to appeal to the the rabid racists and nationalists among us. Right? The fragility of any multi-ethnic space, especially one as segregated as Israelis and Palestinians were before October 7, 
when Hamas militants killed about 1,200 people, as counted by Israel. Multi-ethnic places through history have lived in fear of ethnic cleansing. Like, what kind of person thinks it's good to live in fear of ethnic cleansing? I don't know about you. I would not want to live in a neighborhood that was filled with fear of ethnic cleansing. I would not want to live in a nation, a community, a city, a state where people had active fear of ethnic cleansing. Right? But he says here, multi-ethnic places throughout history have lived in fear of ethnic cleansing, the mass expulsion or massacre of an ethnic group. So why is this good to live in this kind of fear? I mean, I must be primitive. I must be missing something because to me, this is awful. I would not want to live in this situation. If I were, I would not want to live as a Palestinian, right? You may not literally be a Palestinian, but in all likelihood, you may very well feel like a Palestinian of the soul. that You've been dispossessed from your community or your nation and that you are being forced to, to flee the land where you grew up so that you can have a sense of safety. And you're going to feel more safe around people who are similar to you than people who are different from you. Hamas's attack expressed the desire to remove Jews from Israel. Now, with Israel having killed more than 25,000 Gazans, leading members of Israel's government are talking about expelling Palestinians. Wow, it's like they want to try to create some kind of safe space for Jewish Israelis. This is separate from the valid aim of freeing more than 100 hostages still held by Hamas. So creating a safe space for Jewish Israelis, that's not valid. But uh, freeing hostages, that is valid, according to Simon Cooper's particular hero system. There's no inherent reason why one of these desires is valid and the other desire is invalid. It depends upon an arbitrary belief system. Twelve Israeli ministers participated in a conference this week calling for the reestablishment of Jewish settlements in Gaza and encouraging displacement of Palestinians from the area. So why would Jewish Israelis not want a safe space for Jewish Israelis why would Palestinians, Arabs, Muslims not want a safe space for themselves when you're living side by side with people who you think want to massacre or expel you? It's not easy to feel safe. Netanyahu speaks of voluntary migration, presumably with killing encouraging the volunteering. Try to get the United States to lean on e- Egypt to accept Gazans. Well, it's definitely in Israel's interest, presumably, to expel Gazans and Arabs from the West Bank so that they can create a more cohesive, high-trust, low-crime, safe uh, community. Last autumn, Israel's government dismissed an intelligence document that proposed the removal of millions of Gazans to Egypt as just a preliminary paper. Well, of course, every living thing is going to prefer an environment in which it is more likely to thrive, in which it is more likely to be able to reproduce in safety. How are you going to reproduce in safety when you're living in fear of being massacred by outgroups who absolutely despise you. Um, analysis that you have done, how much do you see this playing out in, 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 your, in your book and generally in your, in your study of these women? I'm so glad that you brought up the concept of feminine nationalism because I do touch upon that in the book uh, as well as um, a conversation on feminine nationalism to some extent. Um, and I actually was trying to assess to what extent does this demo-nationalist rhetoric actually play into the narratives that are being produced by the far-right woman that I studied. But I would say that that's certainly more the case in Europe as it, than it is in North America. Um, particularly in North America, there tends to just be a much more conservative understanding of gender roles and the alignment with feminist discourse, um, some feminist discourse, I should say, uh, that is promoted by some nationalists, is a lot more strategic within the European context, particularly when it comes to far-right politics that is much more deeply embedded in political parties and social movements with connections to political parties than it is in the U.S. Um, 
but indeed, I was quite curious to see like how much did feminine nationalism actually play in terms of these women's rhetoric. Um, and it is very little. Um, I mean, I would say that what was interesting is one influencer that I profiled attended this um, feminist demonstration in the UK. And she was going around and asking these women feminism or, or Islam, basically women's rights or Islam was actually. Right, talking about Lauren Southern here. She, what she, she had asked them. And almost all the women, except for one, had all said, like, you're being ridiculous. It's not an either or question. So there's certainly this understanding amongst, I think, most of the feminists that she interviewed that, you know, this is not to, this is a false equivalency, um, with the exception of that one person, right? So um, I think when it comes to understanding then the theoretical grounding of feminine nationalism amongst far right women and how they see the aspects of gender uh, within the movement, it's, it's, something that is strategically deployed at certain contextual conditions, perhaps more so than others. Very interesting. I'm sorry, my voice is, is, is uh, leaving me, <laughs> struggling from a cold. Um, we're starting to have quite a few questions, so I'm going to get to some of them. Uh, we have, let's start with Rachel, question from Rachel. The far right is traditionally misogynistic. How do men in the far right respond to women in the far right? Yeah, thank you for that question. So. Indeed, there is this paradox here uh, in the fact that these far-right women have very public platforms. Uh, and I don't want to gloss over the, the I don't want to portray. All right, so you, you can just hear in the, in the voice and in the, the method of speaking that this is a liberal left academic, academic trying to rise above our you know, normal ties to, to blood and soil, to, to faith and, and to a particular tribe and nation trying to achieve that uh, reflexive self-monitoring courtier morality where she's carefully modulating her, her language depending on you know how a diverse audience is going to experience what she says, as opposed to my home is my castle and I'm going to say what I think, which is a more traditional method of discourse and one that's more dominant among people on the right compared to the left. So back to this hilarious... Simon Cooper column in the Financial Times. Both Palestinian and Israeli extremes have long nurtured their own ethnic cleansing fantasies, egged on by their one-eyed supporters watching safely from afar, including those in big Western cities. I don't think it's that complicated. Every living thing wants to create an environment around it most conducive to its thriving. So it's normal, natural, and to, to some degree healthy that Palestinians and Israelis want to create an environment around themselves that are most conducive to their thriving and reproduction. Hamas's attack was an attempt to enact its fantasy. Now, extreme nationalists in Israel's government, Israel's government are enacting theirs. And again, every living thing wants to create an environment most conducive to it reproducing successfully. Western cities may feel immune from catastrophic ethnic conflict, having achieved a multi-ethnic harmony that never existed between Israelis and Palestinians. But then so had multi-ethnic cities in Europe and the Middle East early last century, Prague, Warsaw, Constantinople, Sarajevo, Alexandria, and Aleppo. Then came waves of ethnic cleansing peaking with the Holocaust. So essentially, he is saying that when you have diversity and proximity, you are creating increasing probabilities of tragedy. So it, it, he seems to implicitly be making an argument against the very thing that he's arguing for explicitly. In 1948, the Palestinian Nakba, right, the creation of the modern Jewish state, saw the displacement of 700,000 Palestinians and Arabs. States then expelled Jews. Christians hung on longer in the Middle East. Into the 1970s, Arab villages 
in the Levant would observe Lent while Christians observe Ramadan. But today, Christianity is fading from much of the region of its birth. Well, because Christians were raped and slaughtered and essentially driven out by Muslims from the Middle East. Every ethnic cleansing fantasy seeks the return to a golden age when the intruder wasn't there. Just imagine that. Many people want to live in a community where the intruder isn't there. Maybe that's, that's the norm, not just for, for people, but for every living thing. Like, what kind of fish wants to swim in waters where th- there are dangerous intruders, right? What kind of animal wants to live in a community where there are dangerous intruders? Like, no living thing wants to live in a community filled with dangerous intruders. That means biblical ties for Israel's far right and Palestine pre-1948 for Hamas. Implementing such a fantasy requires removing the real people who live in the territory. Look, when you feel that your tribe, your group, is under threat, you're not going to care very much for the civil rights for outgroups, right? Most people have a primal desire for survival, and this desire is stronger than their desire for following classical liberal notions of, of human rights. The ethnic cleanser wants to wipe the slate blank, People in western cities chanting from the river to the sea risk endorsing that fantasy. They are implying that this land should be Palestinian. Are they advocating the removal of Israel's Jews? Yes, they are. If so, then American and other far leftists should reflect that this call echoes the language of their Trumpian enemies about immigrants to the U.S. Zionism is colonialism may have been a tenable argument in 1948, but today 7 million Jews live between river and sea. In practice, given that a single state in which Jews and Palestinians live together as equals now appears, appears unthinkable, To want to end the Zionist project would presumably mean removing 7 million Jews. So again and again and again and again, he reiterates that diversity and proximity significantly increase the chances of tragedy. Any humane person opposes ethnic cleansing. Well, most people prefer the interests of their particular group over philosophical and moral concerns. We can't go back to 1947. Both Palestinians and Israelis live in this territory. History put them there. So if you were being ripped off, right, history put that person there to rip you off. If you were being raped, bro, history put that person there in your anus. If uh, some kid is shooting out your windows, right, history put that kid there. If you're living in a suddenly high-crime neighborhood, history put those criminals there. I mean, what, what a silly way of thinking. History puts people there, and therefore we should be passive and simply accept an an untenable, uh, unlivable, dangerous, fearful situation? That's absurd. His essay comes down to this argument. History puts these multi-ethnic societies together where people want to slaughter each other. Why, why, Why just be passive about that? Right? Why not seek to create a world where people can live in safety, trust, cohesion with other people like themselves, governing themselves. Things would have been simpler if the territory were ethnically homogeneous. Yeah, sometimes simplicity is a good thing. But the only plausible way of getting to that point now is if one side kills enough of the other that the survivors flee. Yeah, that's the situation we're in because diversity and proximity frequently lead to tragedy. The world has to find a way to let both groups live there in two states. Why? Sounds like it's dangerous and untenable. This may not work. Once killing starts, multi-ethnic coexistence can become impossible. Killing can spread to other multi-ethnic cities through terrorism. 
Fear of violence can itself encourage ethnic cleansing. Politicians from Germany's far right, closer than ever to power, recently held secret discussions about remigration, euphemism for deportation. Let's pray that the West's great cities can keep holding it together. So here lies on miracles, here lies on the power of prayer, and here lies on the argument that uh, history brought people together into an untenable situation. Therefore, we should find ways to keep living in an untenable situation. Portray the idea that these women are universally accepted by all far right supporters. Um, I mean, I would definitely see, while yes, they were promoting misogyny and, and, and patriarchal views in their rhetoric, they were at the same time receiving a lot of backlash from other men within the far right, particularly users or people commenting on, on their videos. Um, and they'd oftentimes they sort of disregard these comments, try to um, emasculate, you know, men writing these misogynistic comments for them, saying, if you say stuff like that in the chat, we're going to kick you off the live chat. So these sorts of sort of um, things. And if you go to some of the forums, you can see how some male users write about these women um, in very sexist and degrading terms. So I, I definitely don't want to gloss over the, the idea that they are universally accepted within the movement. But on the other hand, um, there is this general understanding that these women are also sort of necessary to the movement. So when I was doing my research for the book, I had interviewed this young man who had been radicalized watching YouTube videos and, and was in the process of de-radicalizing. Um, and he said something to me that really stuck, which was that a movement without women is doomed to fail. Um, and I, I think that still resonates in terms of how I understand the positioning of these women. So here are some highlights from the relevant book. It's called The Women of the Far Right, Social Media Influences and Online Radicalization. It says the rise and fall of Lauren Southern reflect the ephemeral nature of the alt-right movement. The alt-right had no clear leader, structure, or even ideology. It existed almost entirely online, and its adherents were vulnerable to censorship, suspension, and shadow banning. So these young, attractive women taking to mainstream social media to recruit followers and build audiences for their cause. Being an influencer isn't just discourse-oriented. It is encompassed within a broader influencer culture. Right, these are ordinary internet users who accumulate a relatively large following on blogs and social media through text and visual narration of their personal lives and lifestyles. They engage with their followers in digital and physical spaces. They monetize their following by integrating advertorials into their blog or social media posts and making appearances at events. So the far-right women featured in this book are self-styled vloggers, activists, entrepreneurs, and authors. They discuss issues such as dating and relationships alongside free speech, the invasion of migrants in Europe, and culture wars on university campuses. They have helped to mainstream the ideas of what was previously a fringe phenomenon by tapping into the practices of influencer culture to reach wide audiences. Because they will, despite a lot of these misogynistic comments, well, they will say, well, who else will stand up uh, as women within this movement if not for us? So they do a lot of self-rationalizing in terms of their own positioning and, and what they see as, as something of value to the movement. Again, that perhaps goes back to earlier comments about them being opportunists in this space as well and, and sort of seizing um, that, that chance to be these spokespersons in a way. Okay, I'll talk to you blokes later. Bye-bye.